This is From the Valley Podcast, uh, Episode 5. This is uh, Brisbane Business Life. Uh, Today our special guest is a good friend of mine, Damien Beatdown Brown, who's a mixed martial artist but has a very good story to tell, a good friend of mine. Uh, We tried to get this uh, done a couple of weeks ago, uh, but uh, for some reason uh, didn't quite get it finished, so we're going to hopefully get the whole thing done today, but it should be uh, an interesting story and an interesting discussion. So... Uh, welcome along, Damien. Thanks for having me, mate. It's good to be here. Excellent. Uh, that's great. Now, so um, just to get started, Damien uh, is born and bred in Albury in uh, New, New South Wales, Australia. Yep. yep. Um, and uh, and obviously is a mixed martial artist. That's how I met uh, Damien. Uh, came into one of my friend's shops one day and uh, had all his UFC gear on. So that's how we... And it sort of went from there, connecting from, from that uh, situation. So... Uh, I guess a bit of background about Damien, just tell us a bit about your, um, I guess, uh, where you grew up, a bit of your early life, and what were your sort of early career aspirations, what was it like growing up as a kid? Um, yeah, so I grew up in Albury, I was born and, and grew up in Albury, um, I lived there until early teens, moved to Queensland for a few years with my dad, and then I uh, moved back there when I was 16. Um, yeah, my, my parents are separated and, you know, I just lived a... Uh, like I lived a pretty interesting life and um, I guess uh, I lived with my dad in Queensland for a long period of time and my mum was still always in Albury so that was that was difficult but growing up you know I I didn't really um, I wasn't one of those kids that was like I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that look I just did martial arts was my sport and I played rugby league on the weekends and I never really thought about anything else but playing sport and um I guess as I grew up, probably the one thing that sits in my mind, I went away from martial arts in my early teens and kept playing rugby. And I always wanted to be a professional athlete. I always wanted to play rugby league. Um, I just was, you know, obviously just not good enough at the right time or just wasn't in the right spot, you know, and um, it is what it is. That's just the, the way the way life goes. But yeah, I played for 17 seasons and... Wow, 17 seasons. That's yeah. just all rugby league. Yep. Um, yeah, I loved it. Yep. Absolutely passionate about it. I watch every single game on the weekend that I can and um, and then fights as well because I'm a fight fan now as well as a fighter. Definitely. Um, so I guess one of the first uh, careers that you sort of got into um, was uh, a trade being a baker. Uh, tell us a bit about that. What sort of made you uh, become uh, a baker and, and what did you learn? Yeah, well, um, basically, like, like I said, I, I wanted to be a professional athlete and it wasn't really happening. And um, when I was 14 or 15, I didn't really have anything else I wanted to do. And I was living in Queensland with my dad and he opened a bakery and um, in, in Childers. And um, I started working Friday and Saturday nights as a 14-year-old. And yeah, I, I did that for six or seven months before I moved back home to Aubrey. Um and I did my grade 10 there and at the end of it my parents were very strict my entire life you don't leave school unless you've got a trade to go to or you stay in school and you finish year 12 so I wore out the Christmas holidays like every 16 year old would and just before I had to go back to school I went and got a job so that's how that's how I became a baker because I'd done it for a little bit Uh, it's the only thing I'd done and really knew and enjoyed so I went and did it and I love the job. The job was unreal. Um, 
unfortunately it comes with the classic night shift you know thing people need to stay awake and all that sort of stuff so you get a lot of rubbish in the industry starting in the dark that sort yeah. of thing and that sort of pushed me away from it. it was really the the people involved in it and the constant quick turnover and ending up doing entire night shifts by yourself <laughs> with a workload of two or three people so do you think i mean just just touching on that one do you think um it's a hard career that sort of career you can't you can't all be a baker for your whole career or do you reckon there are some people that just got the right mindset that can do that sort of thing no i mean i mean i felt like i miss it like i love the job um i used to it's it's kind of weird i guess there's a bunch of people that would get real appreciation out of their work where you can be satisfied with it and you know when when a baker walks away from a shop in the morning and it looks fresh and it looks good they should be satisfied with that the look of it and that should make them feel like they've accomplished something throughout the night and i always felt like that i loved mm. my job um it was really just the people in it in, involved in the industry that pushed me away from it mm. um i think that you could definitely have a career in it yeah um, people do if you want to live on no money because mm. the money's terrible in yeah. the baking industry it's even though it's the, the worst hours. yeah yeah yeah, so, um, and then there's an interesting story you told me once, which I'm sure you'll tell all the listeners here today, is about, uh, I mean, how you became involved in the next part of your career. Yeah, well, I mean, I was getting that push away from, you know, people leaving the job in the middle of the night and getting stressed with work, and I was managing bake, a couple of bakeries in Brisbane, and it was just getting frustrating, you know, that the employee situation. So one day on a Saturday, I went, I went home, I was living back at my at my dad's house I went home and I opened up the newspaper and there was uh, in the jobs part there was a double spread on the army join the army the army wants you or whatever it said at the time with the with the phone number across it and that was it join the army <laughs> um, just like that That's it was a real knee jerk reaction uh, I think I just didn't have anything else to do you know I had my baking trade and I had a small business certificate and that was it and I didn't really have anything else so I really wanted to join the police force back then but they had you know you needed year 12 and all this sort of stuff and I didn't have it so for me it was about doing you know what I could at the time and just really throwing myself into something that made me uncomfortable and made me want to you know go outside my my box I guess Uh, my dad and my uncle and my dad's cousin and that they were all in the army one of them went to vietnam um but it never drove me to join the army i was Mm. never the person in my family to join the army Mm. Um, my dad was completely surprised when i told him that i joined um but happy and proud at the same time but Mm. he was surprised because it's just i wasn't the child in the family that was going to join the army but that day it was and it didn't take me long it was like six weeks from the time I opened the paper to the time I got to Kapuka, mm. and that's almost unheard of. Mm. Um, so your dad, your dad was pretty proud of you when you did uh, make that decision to join the army. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's a different day and age. You know, he was in the army. I think like late seventies, early eighties. He might not like me saying late seventies, but <laughs> I think it was early eighties. Actually, he might have joined in nineteen eighty, and. Um, yeah, you know, he he loved his time in the army. Mm. Uh, he got injured and um, and got out. But um, this day and age, it's all about deployments. Mm. Um, yes. You know, you get in now and you deploy quickly. I was in the army 13 months when I deployed to Afghanistan. So yeah. it happens fast these days. And I guess 
parents are proud that you join the services because it's it's a proud kind of job mm. but at the same time it holds different risks now mm. than what it used to yeah so when you were deployed to afghanistan stan i mean what was that time like in your life were you sort of up for a, a challenge or did you know what was going to happen what were your sort of feelings in going and did you, and what did you see that was uh did you see anything that was sort of that's you know that it's always going to sort of last in your memory you know that type of thing um well in terms of seeing things you see a lot of things but um i was i was excited i mean i joined the army as an infantry soldier uh, when they told me to look on the online and see what kind of job i wanted yep shooting guns sounded like a fun thing to a 21 year old and that's the only reason i joined infantry um because the description was very gung-ho sounded like a young guy kind of job Mm -hmm. um i did all my training and the only thing i wanted to do was deploy deployment was everything i remember having a goodbye barbecue with my family and everyone's crying and i'm like what are you crying for i'm just i'm just going away for a bit you know what i mean like to me it was nothing Mm. um to me the thought of not coming back was not even like it it didn't exist but Mm. to everyone else they they could see the risks because they hadn't done the training and preparation Mm. so um it was tough for my family for me to go away but when i went away it was it was fine for me um Mm. and probably it's probably not something i've seen but probably the thing that sticks in my mind the most would be um my first my first patrol over there was a night patrol um and the day before um we had lost poppy pierce um rest in peace to his soul but he he had died in a ied attack uh on a vehicle and um the day and so i had landed in the country that morning and then that afternoon we were doing some um briefs i guess uh in the in the patrol base and they dragged the vehicle back through um and that to me was probably like the awakening moment where i was like oh i'm here before that it was all training and excitement and you know i get to do my job for real and then you see a vehicle with a hole blown through the bottom of it getting dragged back through the base with no wheels on it and that was um like Mm, oh we're here so and then the next day we did a night patrol and Mm. you know they they prepare you for like the fact that you you might step on an uh, an id or you might step on a, a mine or something like that and your first patrols through a bunch of fields in the open at midnight and then you sit for an hour and walk back and Mm. every single step for me was frightening Mm. every single Mm. time and you know over time it it gets easy you don't get complacent but it definitely over time it becomes normal but the first one was not normal so how how, how long ago was that when you sort of came back from afghanistan um so i deployed on the 28th of september and i got back on the 13th of april 2008 Mm. um more than 10 years ago now yeah Yep. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll never forget the dates. No, it's yeah, it's like that, I guess. So I guess um, part of what we want to sort of talk a bit about today is sort of how you got into mixed martial arts. What sort of was the motivation to sort of get into that at that sort of time in your life when you were sort of uh, you know young in your twenties? Um, you know, obviously, tell us a bit about some of your early bouts and how you sort of rose up the ranks and what you sort of learnt. So um, when I came back from Afghanistan, I had um, some surgery, a couple operations actually, and 
just as part of my rehab because I had a martial arts background I did um, martial arts from like the age of five or six through to 13 or 14 and um, it for me it was like I used to do this I know I can do it and I know it'll make me fit so I had a lot of time off trying to recover from ankle reconstructions and stuff like that so I turned to what I knew and I went back to martial arts um, my first uh, infantry instructor or one of them um, for my initial employment training was actually a professional mixed martial artist um, Ian Bone and he was based in Townsville but had gotten out of the army and so right, I, Ian Bone. yeah so I went and seen him and um, and I was like hey man I've you know I've put this weight on because I'm 23 years old and all I know how to do is eat like I always have and my body burns it off but I just did the same thing for 12 weeks on a couch and so I went to him for a bit of education and for him to, you know, sort of help me get back on track and um, get me back in shape. And so he, he basically, he's threw me out this A4 sheet of paper straight out of a printer and he's like, writes down breakfast, lunch and dinner with two snacks in it. And it was the worst meal plan anyone could ever want to be on. It was literally was just a small amount of protein, fats and carbs and that was it. Um, and the carbs weren't really... Um, complex carbohydrates or anything they were just like vegetables and stuff so there was no like sweet potatoes and oats or anything like that and he literally gave it to me he said come back and see me in three weeks and I'll give you a, I'll give you a good one you know I think that's a classic PT thing to do just to test out the seriousness of some yeah. people before you commit fully to them with your time mm-hmm. um, so he gave me that and three weeks later and I, and I continued to train with him so I started kickboxing um, five nights a week and you know, uh, obviously I was in the army, so I could lift weights every day as well. So I was training twice a day. I was eating his meal plan seven days a week. So this was up in Townsville, was it? Or yeah, yeah, yep. where I was posted. And then um, I lost uh, 23 kilos in 16 weeks just by following his um, his advice and training with him and stuff. And then I decided that it was time for me to fight. Um, you know, initially it just started out as fitness, but I've got a competitive background and. I wanted to fight, so I took a kickboxing fight. <laughs> um, like on a day's notice, like pretty much the way the fights work in Kansas, you turn up and they go, "We'll put you two together, we'll put you two together." <laughs> and uh, my first ever fight was a tag team fight, and it was two two on two. Uh, I didn't know the rules. I had a guy around my weight, and then two guys that were about eighty six to ninety kilos, and I was probably like seventy six then. And um, so. I'm in there and I'm, I'm having this fight, right? And adrenaline and everything's going. It's my first fight. And then the guy that I was that I was fighting, he tags out to his mate. So when he tags out to his mate, his mate gets in. I turn around and go to tag out. And the ref's like, you can't tag out for 30 seconds. I'm like, what do you mean? Because I had no idea on the rules. And he's like, so whoever tags out first gets the first person comes in. The other person has to wait 30 seconds. I'm like... What? So I'm fighting this guy who's fresh, 86 kilos, throws me to the ground, soccer kicks me. And then next thing <laughs> next thing I know, it's the end of the third round and I'm getting ready for another round and I'm saying to my, my corner man, hey man, how many rounds to go? And he's like, the fight's over. I don't remember any of it. That was yeah. my first fight. Um, Crazy. We won. That was like a... Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't remember it. Um, so yeah, that, that was my sort of first... I guess kickboxing fight and then 
I had one more um, before my, my coach sort of talked me into doing jiu-jitsu because I wasn't a massive fan to start with. And, um, yeah, about a month later, we had a we had an amateur MMA fight. I lost. Um, I felt a little bit, like, demoralized. You know, like, that a man could take me down. He pulled guard, swept me, and armbarred me from mount, and I was like... That's never going to happen to me again. I'm never never going to let that happen to me again because I'm such a, I guess, an alpha male and I'm so mm. proud or whatever. So I started doing jiu-jitsu five days a week and just kickboxing two or three. And um, I had a professional fight two months later. I won it in the first round and I uh, won my first six fights. And that's basically how I started as fitness. I had a kickboxing fight and that's basically how it started. And then, yeah, I, I got to 6-0 and off fought for my first Australian title um, by the time I got to 6-0 and it was all about getting to the UFC but mm. there's a bit of a stigma around getting to the UFC back then um, I guess that was probably 2012 and there was a little bit yeah. of a stigma about it like oh you want to get to the UFC it's, it was like an untouchable goal um, so if you told people around you that didn't truly believe in you mm. they'd almost um, take the piss like they'd almost think that you were joking so I kind of kept it to myself which was a little difficult when you're trying to achieve a goal with you know a team around you but I kept to myself for some time until it sort of became acceptable and then um, you know everyone knew that's what I wanted to do but you know I I definitely had my bumps in the road I had losing streaks yeah at one point my record was 10 wins 8 losses and um, you know I'd almost given up on the fact that I was ever going to reach my dream but um so that, at that point, you'd sort of lost... There was a four-fight yeah, four losing streak to go to 10 to eight, ten and 8. Yeah, so in 2013, end of 2013, I trained in the States with a guy called Mark Fury. And he was, um, you know, top 10 or something, uh, Olympic caliber um, Greco-Roman wrestler. Uh, he trained out of the Olympic Training Center and he was part of the world-class athlete program in the American Army, which is an unreal program so you've got to maintain a certain ranking and then you can enlist in the army you go through the ranks in the army but your only job is to be an athlete and represent the army okay. and I think that's an amazing program um, sounds like a really yeah because they employ them they they enlist them to do that job they don't enlist them to do the army job so therefore they're not they're not really an asset that they're losing you know they enlist them to represent the army the army has teams in every sport over there so so I went over to train with him I lived with him and his family for a month and then um, he started managing me and um, I was having trouble at the time because Australian MMA is developing uh, it goes through like waves so at the time there wasn't many lightweights and if there was they either had less than five fights or there was a couple that had 15 or more and I'd already fought them. So I was having trouble finding fights mm. because the guys with five or less don't want to In fight Australia, someone yeah. who's had, you know, I was 10 and three at the time, 10, 10 and four at the time. So I was coming off a win and, and a lot of guys don't want to fight someone with 14 fights who's 10 and four when they're two and two, three and three, something like that. And, you know, I can understand that. So... I uh, spoke to him and he got me on um, Cage Warriors in, in England. Um, at the time, they held a bunch of shows in the Middle East as well. 
Um, so he got me on that, and uh, it was an interesting deal. You know, I had to fly myself. Um, my corner was flown in from America, but I had to fly myself from Australia, uh, which is which is massive. I mean, the flights to Jordan were twenty eight hundred dollars, and that was yeah. my first flight for him. So, for me to fly there for twenty eight hundred dollars, I was only getting paid twelve hundred US to fight. So, I get twelve hundred US to fight, but my flights were costing twice that to get there, and that's because I don't have a big name here uh, over there. Mm. which I can understand from a business point of view. Um, so I accepted the risk for the yeah. international exposure. My manager at the time got me a wicked deal. I was on a contract with Cage Warriors that if I won the first two fights, I'd get a title shot. And at the time, Conor McGregor was the lightweight title holder. Yeah. So um, I felt like the risk financially was worth it for the reward mm. Mm. because Cage Warriors have signed... I think 90 or something of their athletes over time to the UFC. Yeah. Um, so did, back in those days, before he got the tattoos all over his body, did you run into him back in those days at all? No. So his last fight, I think, was against the Scandinavian, young young Scandinavian fellow who was like 24 and 4 or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and he smoked him, man, like absolutely yeah. smoked him. It was, it was, um, it was crazy. Um, that was his last fight. I believe and that was prior to me signing with them but prior to him signing with the UFC yep um, so yeah I never actually seen him I did fight in Dublin and I mean he might have been there but he wasn't who he is now yeah so no one would have known because he might have been a lightweight champ sitting in the front row but I yep. wouldn't have known who he was yep so um, so my first fight for them was in Jordan I lost a uh, split decision I think yeah, I lost a split decision to a guy from France. Um, and then my second fight was in Dublin. I lost a unanimous decision to a guy from Dublin. And then my third fight for them was in London against a guy from Liverpool or Manchester or something like that. Um, and I lost... Decisions, yeah. A split decision, I think. I can't remember... But I lost three decisions in a row. Um, you know, I, I'm never one to complain about losing. It's, it is what it is. I, I take my losses humbly. But there's a there's a number of fights on my record that could have went either way, I think. Um, you always seem to be inv- I mean, involved in a lot of close fights. I mean, it's very hard to... Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I guess it's my style and, you know easy for people to sit back and sort of criticize athletes about not doing enough or not capitalizing on opportunities but i think like a lot of people aren't actually in there and Mm. and you know like they always say it's easy to see things from the outside so Mm. um yeah i was was in a lot of close fights i think the the fight in dublin i was probably winning the fight up until the last minute i got taken down and he spent the last minute on top and he probably pinched him pinched the third round so um that, that was tough um, but you know the, the contract that I had where I was flying myself it put a lot of pressure on me during fight camps it so would, again would I'm, do, yeah. I'm not making excuses but when you got two or three thousand dollars invested in flights the risk of getting injured you almost want to take it out so you change your training your training's not as hard not as physical you don't spar as much you know you just it, it really affects your preparation so um, 
that yeah. was a rough period for me and then so what sort of got you you know i think you i think you told me this story once but how you sort of got back onto that that final win streak to get yeah, into the so ufc i came back to australia and i rushed myself into a fight thinking i'll just come back and get a win and i was winning and i did a i went for a stupid submission a leg lock and the guy mounted me because he sat up with it and um as i rolled he took my back and choked me and i uh you know it was at 77 kilos not 70 brought away yeah i was just chasing a win um after coming off three losses and i lost again that was my four losses i was 10 and 8 and you know the stress on me and my family was massive um but my wife always supported me um but i knew that at some point i needed to i always worked but at some point i needed to focus on financially setting my family up better than what i was and you know we had a house and we had all that stuff and we were doing the right things but you can always be better except fighting takes a lot away it takes time away you're training two three hours a day the financial stress i mean i was paying two to three thousand dollars for flights and i was getting paid twelve hundred dollars us so i'm getting fifteen hundred bucks back it's you know there's, there's nothing in that um so the financial stress in my family was huge and so i said to my wife if i lose again i'm done and she she i guess kind of thought that i was talking about the pressure from her to me and she said please don't put that on me i don't want to live with that and i was like it's not on you it's on me yep this is this this is where i'm at mm. if i lose again i'm gonna walk away I'm going to look after myself. So what sort of changed from there? What's, what was the, th- I guess? I had a sponsor, Again Faster, Australia. Mm. And they, um, I was talking to the owner and he said to me, hey, I want you to talk to this guy. He goes, like they obviously could see the difference in me after the losses and I was down. And I mean, I, I was probably at my lowest confidence wise. And, yep. And the dream that I've been chasing for six years was slipping away. If not, had slipped away almost. And, um, and he said, I want you to see this guy. And the guy's name's Sean O'Gorman. And he owns um, the Strong Life Project. Um, and check out his Facebook page. He does a lot of, uh, he does a lot of um, presentations for police now and emergency services. And he's just recently done some for corrections. And it's about resilience training and mindset um, and, and dealing with stress and stuff. So I said, okay, no worries, I'll do it. And, you know, I never really thought about seeing a sports psychologist or anything like that, even though I know a lot of athletes do. And so this guy's not a sports psychologist, he's more a mindset coach. And uh, I guess some people would call it a life coach or whatever, but for me, it was about the sport. And so I seen him and, um, you know, he's an ex-police officer. He did 13 years in the Queensland Police and he's dealt with his own stresses and suicide attempts or suicide thoughts and all this sort of stuff so he he's on the same um page as me you know i've dealt with pdsd from the military and all that sort of stuff and and we connected right from the first meeting we met up for two hours and the best piece of advice he ever gave me um i used to worry about what other people thought a lot and he used to, and, he, and, he, and he said to me at our first meeting he said the only thing i want you to do until we see each other again is every time you think to yourself I wonder what they thought about me. You need to say to yourself, what other people think about you is none of your business. 
And he said, all I want you to do every single time you think about what someone else is thinking of you or thinking, oh, why did he do that? If it's in your head, that's a negative thought and I want you to say that saying. So that's what I said to myself. Whatever anyone else thinks about me is none of my business. And I said that continuously for weeks and then after a while, I noticed that I no longer thought about... I didn't care about what other people thought. It was an instant um, weight off my shoulders. Uh, Yeah, so, um, you know, I can't... Besides that one moment, we met up every week. Um, So that was four months before my next fight. We met up every week and then close to the fight, it turned into every two weeks. And then I had... My fight was against Shane Young, who's currently signed with the UFC. Um, And... It was for an XFC title. Um, it wasn't originally for a title. I was I was set to fight someone else, but Shane's a featherweight champ for XFC or was, and so um, he stepped in to fight me on three or four weeks' notice at 155 pounds at lightweight. Um, and I said, "Hey, listen, if you want me to fight your featherweight champ, you may as well make it for the lightweight belt. It's good for him. It's good for me." So that's that's how it came about. It wasn't for a title at all to start with, but you know, I thought it was it was obviously good for me, but I thought it was good for him to be a dual champ and not just fight someone for no reason. So we threw that on the line and um, we went to war for three rounds. And afterwards, my uh, the guy Sean he said to me, "How'd you feel?" And I was like, "Man, I um I felt like I was coming off four wins." he's like perfect that's how you should feel and so I can't just put it all on that one phrase that he gave me but somewhere in that four months we worked together um, he changed my my thought process and my mindset from a negative mindset to a positive mindset and I went into a fight which was an absolute war with no doubts no self doubts that's really good no disbeliefs no like I, it was like I was coming off a massive win streak like I was undefeated it was it was an incredible feeling to be able to turn around from the the negative mindset I had going into the last four to the mindset I had going into this one and it really just goes to show the power of positive thinking so mm. that's how it came about so then you obviously went on the five fight win streak um, and tell us a bit about the story about uh, how the UFC finally called up at short notice um so that was February 2015 and I fought four times that year so in, in that fight with Shane I broke my hand so I had surgery I told him I was going to have 12 months out I mean I was already down in the dumps from losing and my record and dreams slipping away when I went to see the doctors they said oh it'll be 10 weeks so 10 weeks later I was actually sparring I fought three times in nine weeks at the end of the year um, because the space I was in was if I lose, I'm done, so I'm just going to fight. So I fought as much as I could. Um, and then in February 2016, I defended my XFC belt. I won my third round knockout. And I thought, even though I've won five in a row, with my record sitting at 15 and 8, there's no chance that um, the UFC is going to sign me. I'm 15 and 8. So I took a couple of weeks off the gym, I relaxed. I ate what I wanted, uh, let my body heal. And then a week later, um, 
the UFC contacted Justin Lawrence and he was representing previously another fighter um, Nick Patterson and so I don't know how many people even know this story but he was representing him earlier and Joe Silver reached out to him to see if Nick would take a last minute fight because they had a visa issue Nick had previously gone up to Boulder weight um, due to some, some weight issues um, at making lightweight and so he said I'm way too heavy I can't take it which is almost unheard of knocking back an opportunity to fight in the UFC had he fought in the UFC before this guy no. he hadn't had he no. no but he was one of the better ones in Australia and, and he was you know just honest with himself and honest with them and he's like I can't do it mm. so because Justin was the promoter of XFC rather than just say no he emailed Joe Silver back gave him my name my record my five fight win streak three Australian titles and just said look you know he'll fight anyone and um, that's how that's how it happened and he contacted my wife my wife has never in five years or four years at the time rang me at work and um, so I get a call and they're like your wife's on the line I'm like what <laughs> I'm thinking something's wrong because she never rings me at work unless they're like I've always said don't ring unless there's something wrong so um I'm like, right, so I ring her back and she goes, oh, Justin wants to talk to you. It's something about the, something about the UFC. And I was like, oh, okay, no worries. So I rang him and he goes, do you want to fight in the UFC in seven days? I said, hell oh, yeah, man. Why wouldn't I? And he goes, can you make weight? I was like, what kind of questions that? I mean, I literally just had two meat pies for lunch at work. And uh, I was weighing 82.8 kilos that morning. And so um, that was on the Saturday. I weighed in the next um, Saturday morning so seven days later and uh, yeah I said, I said to him man it's, I'll always make weight it doesn't matter and he goes okay no worries uh, were well, you fighting because I've already accepted it I was like sweet so um, you know it took a few hours of them to send the contracts and that yeah. through but literally by Saturday afternoon I was signed to the UFC and fighting I had two tins of tuna that day yeah. after that and um, yeah but the first the first fight in the UFC um, on such short notice would have been your hardest ever weight cut as well yeah, I mean, it's the closest I've ever been. People wouldn't really know what some athletes go to, but it's definitely the closest I've ever been to dying. Um, Jeez. I cut 82.8 kilos I was, and I weighed in at 70.6 yeah. on the nose, 70.7 on the nose, um, which was the limit. Um, so my weight cut went pretty good initially. It was the last 2.2 kilos that didn't want to come off. So I got from 82.8 down to 75.6 by the Friday morning so I had 5 kilos to go in 24 hours and that's the usual dehydration I hadn't dehydrated until this point I just lost a heap of weight but with that would have been a heap of water anyway mm. uh, I trained 3 hours a day all week um, so I was probably exhausted as well I woke up Friday morning I cut 3 kilos or 2.8 kilos I had 2.2 to go and we decided to stop and have a rest that night I decided instead of waking up at 2 in the morning and trying to get it off because I felt I really had this feeling that it wasn't going to come off as easy as what everyone around me thought it was so um, I said let's start now it's 10 o'clock at night uh, we got to 5 o'clock in the morning and I asked <laughs> it's actually a funny story probably um sounds a bit dangerous but I asked for a doctor and um, 
teammates reassured me that they had first aid and that I'd be fine. <laughs> first aid. Uh, <laughs> so um, it's a funny story, you know, between people that understand what we go through. But uh, we decided that because I'd been asleep, I'd been awake all day since the morning before that I'd have a sleep. So we had to check in to get on the bus at seven on wait. So at five o'clock, I went to sleep for about 45 minutes. I got up, went to check on the scales, couldn't find the scales. They'd already put them in the check-in room. So we went and sat in the sauna um, for an hour. I just sat in the sauna. I'd get out every now and then, wrap up in towels, get back in, get out, get wrap up in towels, get back in. Just an hour straight. I had 400 grams to go. Six o'clock in the morning till seven. Anyway, um, we just did what we could do without even worrying about what the weight was. Um, up until five to seven and then my teammate left me outside the check-in area wrapped up in towels trying to sweat while he went and got all our our Reebok gear because we have to wear Reebok and I got up and checked myself in as soon as he left because I really wanted to see what weight I was and um, it was a horrendous 24 hours Um, but I checked myself in I got someone to hold a towel I stripped off naked and I was 156 pounds which is the limit Yep. And uh, it was like the biggest relief of my life almost yeah. being on weight because I was about to step on the scales in front of probably millions of people who were going to watch it and I didn't want to be that guy that took a short notice fight and missed weight or missed weight in general. But I mean, most people, when they do take the short notice, there's a lot of people that miss weight, as you, as you yeah, know. And, I, and I've been very critical of athletes that miss weight and, and uh, what I believe to be unprofessional. Um, so I never miss weight, but it definitely took a massive toll on my body the next day. So after the first round, I almost felt like my legs just didn't want to move. They just weren't swinging from the hips anymore. Mm. Tough. But, um, you know, we made weight. We went to a decision. I put up a good fight against a, a guy from Brazil who was a three-time world champion, Brazilian black belt. Um, In jiu-jitsu? Yeah, three times uh, BJJ world champion. And so for me, it was like I had more submission attempts than this guy throughout an entire fight. I was just too tired to do anything with him. So, um, you know, I took a lot out of that. It wasn't really a loss, even though it was a loss on my record and bounced back with two wins in a row. Yeah, and the first one, full camp, obviously, over in the States, um, UFC 201, first fight of the night, wasn't it, I think? Um, Yep, first fight of the night in the States, so... Um, I picked up a couple of sponsors after that and uh, I took eight weeks off work which was the first time I'd ever done that um, I trained four to five hours a day I, I periodized my training I got a strength conditioning coach for the first time I always just did my own um, and uh, yeah a strength conditioning coach I hired George Lockhart as my nutritionist which was the first time I'd ever used a nutritionist as well. So, you know, I, I, I did what every other athlete would do. Uh, I walked into fight week at 73 kilos instead of the usual 77. And even he was like, dude, that's way too light to walk yeah. into fight week. But I did. Um, lucky for me, I wasn't fighting the biggest lightweight in the division. You know, the guy was reasonably sized, like around the same size as me for a lightweight. Um, so yeah I, I walked into fight week super light so we had heaps of fun during fight week it was super light hearted I had um, three teammates over there instead of coaches because uh, one of my coaches at the time was um, f- 
fighting and then one of the other coaches corners him and the other one had some work. So, so do you find that a lot, lot different experience than normal sort of, you know, when you're fighting with, with the coaches in the corner as opposed to having the three teammates there? Yeah, for sure. When your coaches are there, I mean, you, you feel like... So the difference for me is when my coaches are there, I feel like I'm fighting, like, for them, like, in a way. Like, I'm fighting for myself, but I feel like... You're getting, like, I'm giving something back, direction, right? right? And I'm getting all this direction and you look up to them, you respect them, and you follow their every word. When your teammates are there, you do the same thing, but you're having fun. Yeah. So the difference is when your teammates are there, it's like it's like a party, right? If you party with party with your mates, but if your dad's there, it's kind of a bit serious. It's, it's like a bit, so, of a, a bit of a weight maybe off your shoulders as well. Well, I think so, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a stressor because neither of mm. the three that were there had coached me or mm. trained me during my fight camp. So there's a little bit of... Yeah. Mm. There's, a li- it, there's a little bit of stress there in terms of the people that have helped you get ready are not here. But I'd trained with all three of them over time and I had complete trust in them. So I knew that that would help me get the job done, but I felt invincible. You know, first full camp, first eight weeks off work, you know, I trained perfect every day. I had absolutely zero injuries, mm. um, which is almost unheard of. Nutritionist, weight mm. cut was perfect. Everything, nothing could have been better. Mm. Um, and then I got to America and my wife and my dad was flying across to watch it um, and my brother my wife and dad were coming two days before the fight so four days before the fight my wife rang me up and told me she was pregnant with my first baby so it was like a pretty awesome time in my life like I felt like nothing could go wrong Mm. Um, and that's how it played out that's really good and then pretty much all the other UFC fights have been local either uh in Auckland or in Australia, I think the last, the last, the next four. Yeah, um, um, and you've um, had a couple of really good fights there. I mean, obviously you had the win over John Tuck uh, here in Melbourne. That was we broke your nose, but you came back in the second and third round. Broke my nose, ruptured tendons uh, in my was, wrist. That was pretty unbelievable. Um, and then uh, Frank Camacho in November last year. Uh, one of the I think in the top five or six fights of the whole UFC fights for the yeah, whole year was, so um, ranked fifth best fight in the UFC for 2017 so certainly a, your best ever payday um, but I remember watching that live and it's definitely one of the best fights you'll ever see live and I think the matchmakers actually in my opinion did a reasonable job matching the two up um, if he was if he somehow made it to 155 or 156 it might have been a bit more um the strength might have been a bit closer I think um, if you had a made weight um, like everyone else does and they drain themselves fully to make weight instead of cutting short um, it would have been a lot I think uh, it would have knocked him out it would have been a lot and more in your favour I just say that because you know when you take the water out to a certain degree you take water out from around the brain and it doesn't you know it's the first place that it's got to go back to and it doesn't really you know, that's why people, if they go too low, like you look at Dustin Poirier, he got knocked out a bunch of times at 145, goes back to 155, he's won six in a row. That's because the brain can take, the head can take more punishment if you're not as dehydrated, and everyone knows that. Um, I feel like if Camacho had a made 155, some of those shots I landed were hard, elbows, head kicks. Oh, yeah. And uh, I feel like it would have, I would have knocked him out, um, or at least dropped him and put myself in yeah I think it would have changed the the, the dynamics of the fight but it is what it is I'm a a fighter and I took the fight anyway so so um, 
yeah so that's that's what's been that's what's happened I guess in the UFC career and the, the last fight was in Perth uh, another split decision fight as well uh, one that you know a lot of people that were watching felt that uh, probably hard done by in the decision but that, that happens in the UFC with these judges um, yeah. and they decide they can decide a lot of monetary situations for the UFC fighters just the three people that are sitting around cage side I think the issue, papers. the issue is with MMA being still relatively new mm. to the world a lot of the commissions that commission the fights are actually boxing commissions and so a lot of our judges are actually experienced in combat sports just not MMA mm. and I feel like they don't really have a good understanding of what they're looking at um and that really rubs off in the fights um and then the you know the the end to that is fighters get paid 50 50 mm. right so if you make 20 grand you win 20 grand when you win yes if you lose you get 20 grand that's it yeah. so you know these these um terrible decisions and some of them really are terrible yeah um and obvious they don't just affect a fighter's record but they go on to affect a fighter's income and then in my situation I got released on the back of two split decisions yeah so and they so go on no longer under contract with the UFC well I'm no longer yeah. under contract with the UFC so not only did it affect my income at the time it now affects my income going forward mm. um, and potentially can at times end careers I mean do you think even though there's do you think there's an opportunity to get back into the UFC at some point do you, th- do you see that as a goal in what uh, you're looking at or um, you know I'd like to I mean uh, the UFC were fantastic to me they they always looked after me they always gave me plenty of well reasonable notice for a fight um, I loved my time in the UFC I, I achieved my goals and um, prior to releasing me um, my manager told me that um the UFC had contacted him and, and wanted me to contact them when they were in our area again. So uh, we've done that. and We'll wait and see what happens. You know, I, I did put on great fights in the UFC and they know what they get. Um, I know I'm coming off losses. Mm. They released me in the middle of my um, recovery and rehabilitation from uh, from my knee surgery, mm. um, which thankfully they covered. Um so how's, how's that recovery gone with those surgeries? Um, you had obviously had a couple of surgeries done. One you said was your knee. And yeah, so I had a foot. Um, complete rupture of the medial meniscus. So they, they stitched it back together and I had a couple of months of no weight loading and then I had all my, all my rehab and that. And in the time of the no weight loading when I was on crutches, I had a surgery on my foot. I thought I had an injury for like three years um, from, that from kicking, kicking someone in the elbow. Yeah. And so I always thought I had an injury, like I damaged a muscle in there or something. So I used to tape it up to take the vibration and movement away from it. And the pain would go away. Well, it turns out I had a tumor growing in my foot. <laughs> and um, it just goes to show that when things are injured, you should probably get them checked. But I had a benign tumor, roughly the size of a golf ball, growing in the plantar Jesus. part of my foot. And it had grown to a point where I was pinching a nerve between the bone for probably the last year and a half so that's why it was so sore all the time and um, so they cut that out and it's gone it's 100% it's fine Um, my knee's good Uh, so yeah I I just haven't had an opportunity to to bounce back and and get a win before the UFC comes here but we've certainly reached out and said to them hey if you want someone to fight I'll fight at 155 or 170 
And there's uh, an Adelaide card coming up in December. You, you were yeah, so we've here. reached out and we told them that we're, we're good to go. Um, I've had a couple other fight officers in between. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I don't think that it's it's worth going from. You know, I'm, I'm older now. I've got it. Obviously, I've got my family to to think about, and well, I just don't yeah. think at 33 years of age that it's worth going back to Australia and fighting for a thousand dollars. So. Um, Mm. I'm looking only at international opportunities unless people in Australia can can provide me with enough enough uh, you know financial incentive to take time off work and and whatever. No, so no, that's I guess I think you have mentioned before your dad is probably one of the people that you look up to as for an inspiration, um, and that's obviously that makes sense. Uh, you know, obviously he went through uh, a life where he had to battle really hard and and overcome obstacles. So I can see that he would have been a great inspiration. I guess with the being around the mixed martial arts, you know, game for the last eight to ten years, I mean, who are the people in that in, in the mixed martial arts industry that you look up to and say, you know, these are the people that I respect the most, or these are the people that I sort of uh, get something out of, if there are any. Um, I really look up to my coaches. I mean, um, like for me. You know, my, my coach, Dan Higgins, yeah, he was around fighting open weight MMA tournaments in Japan before anyone knew what an MMA even was here in Australia. Um, and uh, he just, he's just got so many good pointers, but the, the bond and trust, which I believe you, you should have in a coach, is that you can share anything. Mm. So a coach should know what you're going through. If you just had a fight with your wife or a fight with your girlfriend, you're about to have a fight, and you just had a blue three hours earlier, your coach should know that because your coach is there to coach you through emotions, yep. mental and physical stress and get the win. Yeah. So I feel like... Um, so when did you first meet Dan Higgins? Was that, that was obviously... Um, so I got posted in the army to Brisbane. I, I fought while I was in the army for a bit um, in 2011. And that's... I met him at a flight show in 2010 and told him that I wanted to train there. And he said, I'll see you when you turn up. And... Um, for anyone that knows him locally will know that that's about all he said. I'll see you when you turn up. Um, <laughs> so uh, I turned up and I <clears throat> I took my punishment for the first six months and I earned my spot in the gym. And um, You know, it's, it's probably life's probably changed a little bit since then, but back eight, nine years ago, that seven or eight years ago, that's exactly what you did. You turned up to a gym if you wanted to be a pro fighter and you got put through your paces and, and you built strong resilience and good characteristics and um, you licked your wounds and you came back the next day so I went through it and um, you know he I guess uh, gave me an opportunity to be a part of what he was doing and, and he's always guided me in the right direction and he's he's always been there for me when I needed it and you know as a bloke <clears throat> if I need to you know if something was happening in my life and I needed mm. someone to talk to he was there so I really look up to him and, and admire what he does and the way he, I guess he, he feeds his family and, mm. and all that sort of stuff and then the other one is um, my striking coach Steve Compton yep I mean he's <clears throat> I've had so many chats with him you know about just hard times and all that sort of stuff and he's from England and he brought his family out here and built a life for himself and you know I think he's <clears throat> just an unreal you know human being and he's, he's, got, a, and he's got a good son I mean, fantastic Elliot. martial artist um, you know he he has he's done everything 
and mm. he is incredible mm. at what he does um and uh just to watch someone live a martial arts lifestyle is an inspiration because a lot of people can't do that in this day and age mm. um just with the way life is um and and then now i've got a young son and, and i just watched the way that his son is and mm. and that's um so Elliot Compton's obviously one of the best um, 72 and a half kilo kickboxers in the country or tie fighters in the country and um, definitely he's world class and yeah he is world class and he he's been uh, unreal for me as a training partner and a friend and um, just to see the way that um, you know he's grown up it gives me inspiration as a, as a young um father and a martial artist so definitely look up to my two coaches i mean there's a bunch of australian fighters who came before me and i've always somewhat looked up to them or uh been inspired by them mm. to a certain degree mm. um so yeah damon i think so you, you've got you know you do you, you tell a good story you know uh, i think one of the things that that i get it, get from you is that you you know there's an inspirational speaker type uh, possibilities there for for going around to different uh organizations and and motivating them that's certainly uh something you'd certainly be very good at and i'm sure you've thought about and probably doing doing a bit of uh but and also i think you because you've got that sort of uh you know team mentality where you like sort of training with other fighters and developing their careers i mean is something like um you know setting up your own gym or training is that something that you see on the horizon yeah for sure um I've got some things in the works at the moment and I uh, hope to open up my own gym in the future, hopefully the not-too-distant future. Um, but, yeah, you know, we're in the planning stages, but um, I do hope that there will be a training centre coming to Brisbane soon. Um, I have a crazy passion for teaching people, um, whether it be coaching in sports or just teaching in general. Every single job I've ever had, I've been an instructor. Um, I just... You know, for me, I'm not that person that knows a technique, uses it on everyone and never teaches anyone. I'll just share everything. Um, yep. I love coaching. But more importantly, I just I just want to, for me, um, being a veteran in the Army and of overseas and that, I, I really just want to create an environment, a community where people can come and it's a non-stressful environment um, where we're there to support each other. And, mm. and I think... Um, when I do open a place and and I do start coaching and I think that 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 will be the focus is is yeah. um you know providing an environment that is relax a relaxed learning environment where people can can lean on each other mm. so um and uh, I don't I was, have any set dates but we'll wait we'll wait and see when that comes you see up. yourself uh staying in Brisbane I mean this is a lovely city the river city I mean you've been home here for quite quite some time now um, how do you? What do you think of Brisbane as a city? Do you think it's evolving? Is it, is it where you want to sort of continue the rest of your life and where your, where where your child is to grow up, sort of thing? Yeah, I, I love Brisbane. When I when I got posted to Townsville, I wanted to come to Brisbane. When I did my next course and I got posted again, I was going somewhere else. I wanted to come to Brisbane. Anyway, in the end, I, I was lucky enough to have a, a warrant officer that wanted to work with me, and so he brought me to Brisbane to work with him because that was his next posting. Um, Brisbane's been amazing to me. Uh, I believe that it's probably, well, from all stats, it's probably the fastest growing spot in Australia, if not Queensland. Southeast Queensland is so. Um, I think uh, 
to get ahead in life it's, it's probably where I need to be and to give my son the best opportunities in life it's definitely where I need to be um, there's lots of things you can do in other towns but Brisbane's got it all and I think that anything he wants to do will be here and mm. I'll do my best to provide that no that's excellent I think uh, coming up to nearly the hour I guess uh, Damien so we've we've uh, covered off on it quite a bit is there anything else I guess you wanted to add before we sort of wrap things up shortly um, you know like I'm not I mean there's not anything specific really but like I just think that um, yeah, I mean, not, there's nothing really specific but it's been awesome being on, on, the, uh, on the show and having a chat and sharing my story but if there's anyone out there that wants uh, I guess not, not necessarily a motivational speaker I mean people will find motivation in my story but maybe just someone to share their story at you know work lunches or uh, work do's or um, you know team building sessions I've done a bit, like I said I've been an instructor in the army I've done a lot of team building stuff and I feel like I, I can share my story um, and people can take something from it I've been through a lot I'm only 33 years old so um, I'd love to share my story with whoever wants to hear it that's a great story and uh, certainly I'm glad you decided to come on the podcast and we'll certainly get this up uh, up and around but um, yeah no it's it's, thank you very much go Richmond Tigers they're going to bloody Ooh, yeah. win the bloody uh, finals again they're only one more win away from getting into the grand Can't final wait. Now. back to back it's a pity about the Broncos but uh, yeah I've stopped talking about it actually because <laughs> yeah. okay, I, we'll, some, we'll... I was somewhat embarrassed watching it the other yeah. day it almost cost me a TV but um no, and, uh, I'm always a Broncos supporter. Through and I guess through. one of the parting things is only three weeks away, I think, now. Connor Khabib, who have you got? Uh, I've got Khabib. I've always said Khabib will win. You know, I like Connor McGregor. Um, and uh, everyone hates his training partner, Artem Lobov. But <laughs> I hung out with that dude in Vegas for like three days, and he's one of the nicest people you ever meet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he... Uh, <clears throat> you know, I like their team. I think their team's awesome. His coach seems pretty cool and uh, I mean Kavanaugh is very well respected well I just like the way they talk and um, you know Conor McGregor can talk as much you know trash talk as he wants because it comes off naturally um, and it's it's almost it's almost cool to watch but um, I just think that Khabib is a weapon and I think if there's anyone in the sport that will remain undefeated for their entire career it'll be, be him yeah um yeah, I think uh, everyone says he's striking, he's bad and all this sort of stuff. But, I mean, look at the guy shoots from two metres away and gets hold of your foot, you're done. And yeah. that's exactly what he does. So, um, I do think at some point he'll get Conor McGregor down and I don't think Conor will get up. And that's not a discredit to his grappling. It's just a compliment to Khabib. So. It's going to be very interesting when that all takes I place. I think the that's fight finishes sure. under two and a half rounds too for any of those betters out there. Okay. And it's obviously going to be... Um maybe a TKO Khabib is what you're predicting or uh, I think you'll submit him submitting because yeah. yeah yeah okay very interesting um, so that has been the Brisbane that's been the From the Valley podcast Brisbane Business Life Tim Wilshire here I've spent uh, some time here with Damien Brown here this morning and uh, hope you've enjoyed all that uh, we'll uh, stay tuned and there'll be another uh, guest coming up in the not too distant future thank you very much